Welcome to the September 7th, 2023 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. First on today's podcast, long-term outcomes with pembrolizumab in relapsed refractory classical Hodgkin lymphoma. In five-year follow-up of a phase two trial, pembrolizumab induced some durable responses, then a second course frequently reinduced response. Up next, what's behind the accumulation of toxic-free alpha-globin in beta-thalassemia? Investigators uncover a metabolically regulated protein quality control pathway that could be amenable to treatment with new or repurposed drugs. Finally, a roadmap for managing CAR T-cell hematologic toxicity. Experts propose a novel toxicity category, immune effector cell-associated hematotoxicity, or ICAT, and provide recommendations on grading, diagnostic workup, and management. Our first research article is titled, Five-Year Follow-Up of Keynote 87, Pembrolizumab Monotherapy in Relapsed Refractory Classical Hodgkin Lymphoma. The first author is Philippe Armand of the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, Boston, Massachusetts. First, some background. We know that classical Hodgkin lymphoma is frequently curable with multi-agent chemotherapy. However, a significant minority of patients will require other treatments. Immune checkpoint inhibitors are a logical choice, given the unique biology of Hodgkin lymphoma. One major factor is the overexpression of PD-1 ligands, PD-L1 and PD-L2, which suppresses effector T-cell function and dampens immune response. As such, the PD-1 inhibitors pembrolizumab and nivolumab are highly effective in relapsed refractory classical Hodgkin lymphoma. Both are now FDA-approved for treatment in this setting. Pembrolizumab's approval was supported by results of Keynote 204, a randomized phase 3 study of pembrolizumab versus the antibody drug conjugate brentuximab vidotin. Keynote 204 included 304 patients with classical Hodgkin lymphoma who had relapsed after autologous stem cell transplantation, or ASCT, or who were ineligible for ASCT in the first place. Progression-free survival was significantly longer with pembrolizumab, at a median of 13.2 months versus 8.2 months for brentuximab vidotin. That study was preceded by Keynote 87, a phase 2 study of pembrolizumab monotherapy, the subject of our current research article. In the initial report of Keynote 87, the objective response rate, or ORR, was 69.7%, including a complete response, or CR, rate of 22.7%. The safety profile was acceptable, according to investigators, and consistent with previous pembrolizumab studies. The median duration of follow-up was about 10 months. The present report now includes data from Keynote 87 with more than five years of follow-up. The study included a total of 210 patients with relapsed or refractory classical Hodgkin lymphoma. About 46% were female. The median age at enrollment was 35 years. All patients received pembrolizumab treatment for a maximum of two years. With a median follow-up of nearly 64 months, the ORR was 71.4%, including a CR rate of 27.6% and partial response rate of 43.8%. The median duration of response, or DOR, was 16.6 months, about one quarter of patients maintaining response for four years or more. The median progression-free survival, or PFS, 
was 13.7 months, with a 5-year PFS rate of 14.2%. Median OS overall survival was not reached, and the 5-year OS was 70.7%. Patients who achieved CR had superior DOR and PFS. In these patients, median DOR was not reached. About half remained in response for at least 4 years. The 5-year PFS was 44.3%, and the 5-year OS was 82.8%. Investigators also reported outcomes for 20 patients who experienced disease progression after CR and received a second course of pembrolizumab. A total of 19 of these patients were evaluable for response. 14 of 19 evaluable patients responded to retreatment with pembrolizumab, yielding an ORR of 73.7%. Half of these were CRs and the other half were PRs, and the median PFS was 17.2 months. Now for safety looking at the overall study population. About three-quarters of patients experienced treatment-related adverse events, or AEs, of any grade. The most common grade 3 to 4 treatment-related AEs were neutropenia, pericarditis, and diarrhea. 6.7% of patients discontinued treatment due to AEs. There were no treatment-related deaths and no new safety signals in the 20 patients receiving a second course of pembrolizumab. In a commentary, Chan Shea of the University of Western Australia describes pembrolizumab as the key for some, but not all, patients with Hodgkin lymphoma. Chea says further studies are needed to determine the optimal treatment setting, sequencing, and potential combination regimens. Nevertheless, Chea says, these long-term outcomes provide important context for decision-making. That's because many classical Hodgkin lymphoma patients are young adults dealing with disease in the face of marriage, parenthood, and establishing careers, among other major life events. One final note for context. Similar long-term results have been reported for nivolumab treatment of relapsed refractory CHL in the Phase 2 Checkmate 205 study. One key difference is that the nivolumab study included treatment until progressive disease. In this pembrolizumab study, treatment was capped at two years. Although cross-trial comparisons are fraught with perils, the study investigators suggest that continuing PD-1 blockade more than two years may not be beneficial in patients with relapsed refractory CHL. Taken together, study investigators state that long-term results of the Phase 2 Keynote 87 study demonstrate the robust anti-tumor activity and manageable safety of pembrolizumab in relapsed refractory CHL. Of note, all patients in long-term response, four years or more, were complete responders. Patients not achieving CR had poorer outcomes, raising the question of whether they may be best suited for consolidation strategies. Eyeballing the DOR curves, authors say there's a provocative possibility that responders could remain in remission beyond the five-year time point currently reported. For now, the results may help inform clinical decision-making in patients with relapsed refractory classical Hodgkin lymphoma, including the potential use of consolidation treatment, such as allogeneic stem cell transplantation. Let's move to the next research article. Loss of MIR-451 alleviates beta-thalassemia by stimulating ULK1-mediated autophagy of free alpha-globin. And the first author is Julia Keith of St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, Memphis, Tennessee. Beta-thalassemia is recognized as being among the most common of monogenic diseases. 
For most patients, clinical management hinges on supportive care that includes red blood cell transfusions and iron chelation. Hydroxyurea is useful to increase functional hemoglobin levels and decrease transfusion requirements. And allogeneic bone marrow transplantation is a potentially curative option for the minority of patients with HLA-matched sibling donors. Emerging therapies for beta-thalassemia, including gene therapy, are generally focused on supplementing reduced beta-globin levels. However, alpha-globin shouldn't be ignored, since excess alpha-globin chains are the main culprit in the pathology of this disease. Beta-thalassemia is characterized by mutations in the beta-globin gene, or HBB gene. These mutations result in reduced or absent expression of the beta-globin component of adult hemoglobin. As a consequence, excess-free alpha-globin forms toxic precipitates, causing hemolysis, or premature destruction of red blood cells, and ineffective erythropoiesis, or impaired maturation of bone marrow precursors. Erythroid cells do have their quality control mechanism to eliminate free alpha-globin. Previously, the authors of our current research article reported some insights on how this happens. They found that in beta-thalassemia, clearance of free alpha-globin is mediated by an autophagy pathway, and that pathway is mediated by ULK1. That's the ONC51-like autophagy-activating kinase 1. Here's how it works. When there are nutrients available to support cell growth, ULK1 is inhibited by mTORC1, or mammalian target of rapamycin complex 1. But when nutrients are not available, ULK1 is activated by AMPK, AMP-activated protein kinase. We know AMPK is the master regulator of metabolism. By stimulating this pathway through inhibition of mTORC1, researchers found that beta-thalassemia pathology could be ameliorated. But what are the mechanisms behind the ULK1-driven pathway, and are they targetable? That's the focus of the latest research article. The research integrates a variety of methods, including mouse models of disease and hematopoietic stem cell transplantation, genome editing of fetal liver hematopoietic stem and progenitor cells, and human cells from a healthy donor and a patient with transfusion-dependent beta-thalassemia. The key findings focus on microRNA, small RNAs that bind specific messenger RNAs to inhibit their expression. Specifically, they looked at the tandem microRNA genes MIR451 and MIR144. They are encoded in a locus activated by GATA1, the erythroid transcription factor. In beta-thalassemic erythroid precursor cells, disrupting the MIR144451 locus reduced activity of mTORC1 and stimulated ULK1-mediated autophagy of free alpha-globin. That reduced hemolysis and ineffective erythropoiesis, and it did so by two different mechanisms. Firstly, the loss of MIR451 upregulated its target mRNA, CAB39, and CAB39 encodes a cofactor for a kinase that phosphorylates AMPK. As a result, AMPK was activated and mTORC1 was repressed, and both of those are known to stimulate the activity of ULK1. The second mechanism is reduced expression of the major iron importer, TFR1, or transferrin receptor 1. Loss of MIR144451 resulted in restriction of erythroblast iron, and previously in patients with beta-thalassemia, erythroblast iron restriction has been shown to reduce alpha-globin precipitates and improve hematological parameters. Of note, researchers also found that they could abrogate the beneficial effects of MIR144451 loss through disruption of the CAB39 gene. Likewise, ablation of the ULK1 gene reduced the beneficial effects of MIR144451 disruption in beta-thalassemia. 
Altogether, these findings link the severity of beta thalassemia to the highly expressed MIR-144451 erythroid microRNA locus. The findings also uncover a metabolically regulated protein quality pathway that investigators say is amenable to therapeutic manipulation. In a commentary, Christian Babs of the University of Oxford in the United Kingdom marvels at the role of the incredible ALK, so to speak, in improving beta-thalassemia. Babs says this research shows that the MIR-144451 locus is a genetic modifier of beta-thalassemia by regulating removal of free alpha-globin via the autophagy kinase ULK1. Some have suggested that reducing alpha-globin levels could be therapeutic in beta-thalassemia. That includes at least one report on the removal of an alpha-globin enhancer to reduce levels of the alpha-globin protein. But Babb states that in this report, investigators have shown for the first time that genetic disruption of the MIR-144451 locus can have a beneficial impact on the autophagy pathway through upregulation of AMPK. In his commentary, Babb suggests that existing drugs that increase AMPK activity could be repurposed as treatments for beta-thalassemia. These drugs could play a part in combination regimens, possibly alongside therapeutic activation of gamma-globulin, or agents such as Luspatercept that may improve ineffective erythropoiesis through modulation of apoptosis. This could fulfill an unmet treatment need. Since genome therapy is not likely to be accessible to most patients in the medium term, Babs concludes, new approaches are needed, and removing excess free alpha-globin chains may be one useful component of future treatment strategies. The final article is titled, Immune Effector Cell-Associated Hematotoxicity, ICAT, EHA, EBMT, Consensus Grading, and Best Practice Recommendations. The first author is Kai Rajeski of Ludwig Maximilians University in Munich, Germany. Chimeric antigen receptor, CAR, T-cell therapy, is a practice-changing cellular immunotherapy for a growing number of relapsed or refractory B-cell malignancies. Durable remissions can be achieved, but patients experience a unique range of characteristic side effects, such as cytokine release syndrome, or CRS, and neurotoxicity. And some patients present with clinical and laboratory findings that mimic hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis, or HLH. These toxicities have been heavily studied, and today there are robust guidelines covering CRS, Immune Effector Cell-Associated Neurotoxicity, or ICANS, and most recently, Immune Effector Cell-Associated HLH-like Syndrome, or IECHS. So what about cytopenias? Post-CAR-T hematologic toxicity is less well understood, despite its clinical significance. Neutropenia is in fact the most common toxicity seen following CAR-T cell therapy. Severe or prolonged cytopenias can add to immunosuppression, and infections are the most common cause of non-relapse mortality in CAR T-cell recipients. Post-CAR T-cell hematologic toxicity is unique from chemotherapy-associated cytopenias in several respects. A biphasic trajectory is commonly seen, with early cytopenias observed within the first two weeks of CAR T-cell therapy, and late recurrence often more than 30 days after treatment. These cytopenias can be persistent, lasting months or even years after the CAR T-cell infusion. And patients can develop severe bone marrow aplasia that often does not respond to growth factor support. That takes us to our featured article, authored by a panel of experts from EHA, the European Hematology Association, and EBMT, the European Society for Blood and Marrow Transplantation. 
Previously, in an EHA-EBMT international survey of more than 50 CAR T-cell centers, experts found considerable heterogeneity in cytopenia grading and management. Survey results were published in May in the EHA journal, Hemisphere. At that time, authors characterized CAR-T hematologic toxicity as a, quote, ill-defined toxicity category in need of harmonization and standardization. Now in blood, authors provide consensus guidelines for what they call immune effector cell-associated hematotoxicity, or ICAT. They provide a novel framework for grading ICAT, and they offer expert recommendations for diagnostic workup and management. Importantly, the guidelines are not specific to CAR T-cell therapy. They apply to all types of T-cell-based immunotherapies, including bispecific antibody constructs and all diseases in which these therapies may be used. First, ICAT grading. The grading system distinguishes between early ICAT, a cytopenia occurring in the first 30 days after CAR T-cell infusion, and late ICAT, a cytopenia observed post-day 30. The main concern is severe or prolonged neutropenia, as isolated thrombocytopenia or anemia are rare. So the experts developed a table-based grading system that accounts not only for depth of neutropenia, based on absolute neutrophil count, but also for duration. See Table 1 in the published article for more details. Management of ICAT is roughly divided into two phases. The early phase includes management of expected cytopenias while mitigating risk of complications. The later phase covers persistent or treatment refractory cytopenias. In this context, the authors outline approaches to the management of ICAT, including transfusions, growth factor support, infection prophylaxis, and hematopoietic stem cell boost. They also discuss the role of allogeneic hematopoietic cell transplantation. This is described as a last resort for patients with the highest grade ICAT that persists despite the use of recommended management approaches. Be sure to check out the published article for more, including guidance on risk factors for development of ICAT, predicting risk for prolonged neutropenia using the previously described CAR hematotox prognostic score, and considering a diagnosis of HLH in patients with severe ICAT. Also in blood, you can find a related commentary on these consensus guidelines by David Qualis of Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York City and Karen Jacobson of Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. In the commentary, Qualis and Jacobson state that this is the first such guideline by a major organization, and it is a much-needed development for the management of this important CAR T-cell-associated toxicity. Qualis and Jacobson say the novel grading system provided in this paper is feasible, requiring only absolute neutrophil count and timing to distinguish early from late ICAT. It captures the biphasic nature of post-CAR T cytopenias, representing an improvement over conventional adverse event grading scales that don't account for timing or duration. Qualis and Jacobson say that while the guideline provides important approaches to the management of ICAT, it also highlights significant gaps in our knowledge. So this is not the destination, they conclude, but an early roadmap. Hopefully, it will spark further research that not only broadens our understanding of ICAT, but also improves outcomes for patients receiving CAR T-cell therapy. You have been listening to The Blood Podcast. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode. Thank you for listening.